This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Talking about Attorney General Dave Yost on Today in Ohio. That guy is one busy Attorney General. It is Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Courtney Astolfi. It's a sunny, snow-covered Wednesday. Spring is soon to come. Let's begin. It's Dave Yost versus Norfolk Southern now. What is the Ohio Attorney General claiming in his lawsuit against the railroad over its now infamous derailment in East Palestine, Lisa? Yeah, Dave Yost filed suit in federal court yesterday. It was 106 pages long and includes 53 counts. They're seeking a declaratory judgment that Norfolk Southern Railroad is responsible for covering all costs of the emergency response to that February 3rd derailment. No specific amount has been mentioned, but Yo said it will be lots and maybe lots and lots of money. Um, this joins at least 20 other lawsuits that have been filed against Norfolk Southern by other people. In Yo's suit, he wants them to pay for environmental, property, and financial damage for East Palestine residents, seeking civil penalties and court costs. They want to ban Norfolk Southern from disposing of contaminated material on site in East Palestine, and they require future monitoring by the EPA of soil and groundwater near this site. Uh, Yost did say that Norfolk Southern was highly cooperative. He met with them Monday in a meeting and in a Norfolk Southern statement, they said they will create a long-term medical compensation fund that w- and provide tailored protection of home sellers near the site. Yeah, I, I get that they're saying all the right things, but Dave Yost is doing the right thing in getting this into the courts where they'll be under order to do it right now they're they're in a spotlight so of course they're going to say everything is dandy and we're going to be great and the minute nobody's looking they could slink away dave yost is making sure that doesn't happen you're listening to today in ohio how far are wages for women in cuyahoga county behind the wages of men in similar fields according to the census bureau Courtney, this is the time of the year, I think, where where women actually start to make money, that, that up until now, that they're not making the same money men make. Yeah, and, and that's what this this Women's History Month is kind of marking is is at what point in the year women would um, you know be on that equal par as men. And in Cuyahoga County, we learned from this week that, that 81.8%, that's what women make compared to men four out of five, you know, cents on the dollar, essentially. So so that wage gap is only a, a tiny amount higher than eight years ago. The, 
the other most recent numbers we have were from 2015. And and back then, the gap was 80%. So we've only moved the needle 1.8% over those eight years. And, 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 you know, we did see that women's median salary in Cuyahoga County did go up. It's sitting right around $46,600, according to this data. And that is up about $6,000 from 2015. And it's still about $2,300 more than Ohio's overall median salary for women. But, you know, I, I think taken together, these two numbers kind of show that wages probably went up for, uh, across the board for everybody and, and women still have yet to significantly close that gap compared to just eight years ago. Yeah, and this drills right into Cuyahoga County. So if we like to think that we're enlightened in Northeast Ohio, the findings are not such. And it's good data, right? It's the Census Bureau. It comes from the big questionnaires that they put out. So it's very statistically sound. Yeah, and and we were able to get that deeper level of detail from these numbers. So our colleague Zachary reported that the wage gap is most severe in 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 legal in the legal sphere. Women women in Cuyahoga County make about fifty seven percent of the salary men receive when they're in the legal field. Firefighting is kind of not surprising. The gap's large there. Women make about 59%. Construction's about 62% of what men make. And and law enforcement's among that list, too. Things that, you know, you traditionally think of men filling those jobs. And 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 when you look at jobs that are more often thought of as 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 jobs for women, that's where the wage gap is closest, it seems. You know, you're talking community and social services where women are making about 97% of what men are. Healthcare support, 96%. Life, physical, and social sciences. Um, that, that one's interesting. That's about 94%. So we did get a breakdown among professions here that, that shows the disparity we're still up against. The public safety ratings are interesting because they're all usually public contracts. So what that must say is that there are a lot more men in the management ranks than there are women. Uh, and that's why that that's probably out of whack. Yeah. I'd assume it's, it's that who's getting those promotions, right? Who has to take years out of their career to raise children? I mean, we know that that's a factor in these numbers as well. Laura, you have strong feelings about this. I know. I do have strong feelings about this. And I think that because women have a wage gap, they are the de facto person in a relationship to kind of hang back if they needed more childcare. And it, it just kind of uh, works again. You know, it, it piles up against it. You know, if, if you have to make an economic decision and the man makes more, then it makes more sense for the woman to stay home. So I think there are a lot of things that go into childcare and deciding who's going to bear that burden. But this is definitely something that matters and we should keep talking about. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Here's another attorney general story waiting to appeal a stay on Ohio's heartbeat bill to the state Supreme Court paid off for Attorney General Dave Yost. Laura, what will the court consider? So the Supreme Court is going to take on two out of the three questions in this Dave Yost six week abortion ban case. So it's going to decide whether he has the right to appeal a lower court's order putting the embryonic heartbeat bill on hold and whether the abortions have any standing or the right to challenge the law in the first place. They're not going to look at this third question, and that's whether the Ohio Constitution creates the right to an abortion. And remember, we talked about this 
I can't remember, a couple of days or last week where the justice that's going to be on this case, Matthew Byrne from the 12th District Court of Appeals, has served on the advisory board of a pregnancy center in Cincinnati. Yeah, the 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 decision that Yost is appealing came down in the previous calendar year when the mm-hmm. makeup of the court was quite different. And he didn't appeal it then. He waited until the calendar turned and the court was recomposed to file that appeal because I think he believes he'll have a better chance. It would have been wrong for them to consider the con- constitutionality of the the, of the law because that's what the lower courts are still dealing with. Right. They don't usually take on a case until the lower courts have hashed it out. Right. But this is, I mean, this is a formality. I mean, you have to do it. They have to formally accept the case. But I think everybody knew it was coming here. That's why I've already talked about Matthew Byrne. But this is confusing, right? How many different courts are weighing in on this issue and, you know, the the law that existed that's on hold and its effect, you know, I, I just think that probably a lot of Ohioans are confused about where abortion stands in this state. Well, and it could all be moot because if right. the petitions get signed and it goes to the ballot and Ohioans vote the way polls show they will, then there'll be no need to consider the heartbeat bill because the right to an abortion will be enshrined in the state constitution. And this case will probably take longer than that to resolve. What is behind the Cincinnati Bengals push to limit workers' compensation claims of professional athletes who are still playing five years after their work-related injuries took place? Lisa, is this the NFL team being mean, or is there sense to this? I don't know. It depends on how you feel about what they call double dipping. So uh, Cincinnati Bengals owner Mike Brown is asking Ohio lawmakers to limit workers' comp and medical benefits for work-related injuries for athletes. They want to add language to the budget bill, and they want to say that Ohio professional athletes cannot file for permanent partial disability if they are still under contract at least five years after after their injury occurred and they're still playing. So players would have to pay the full amount of their health care related to on-field injuries. Uh, Bengals are claiming this is double dipping for active players. They, you know, they're still playing even though they're on a disability. The NFL Players Association begs to disagree. They sent an email to their members and they said, this is an attack on your rights as an American, as, as a player covered by collective bargaining agreement, and the teams are only wanting to do this to increase profit. Uh, Representative Bill Seitz is helping advance the proposal in the General Assembly at the Bengals' request, and he said that everything you hear from the NFL Players Association is wrong. They conveniently forgot that Ohio law extends the statute of limitations on each time claimants seek treatment for their injury. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm confused by what's really at stake here, because my understanding with workers' compensation is that the, it pays for injury-related expenses when you're injured at work. And so if you're a football player and you're injured while playing, then this is how you get get taken care of. But if you're still playing and you're still employed by the team, aren't all your costs already covered because you have the, the team's health care? It seems like that's what they're, they're arguing. They're, they're saying if you're injured and out of the game, then of course mm-hmm. you get full rights to this. 
But if you're still playing, what is workers' compensation paying for? Exactly. And, you know, Seitz does make a, you know, a case here. He says that law does extend the statute of limitations. When they seek treatment for that particular injury, it, it you know, increases the statute of limitations. So they are getting covered while they're still feeling the effects of their injury is the way I read it. Yeah, whenever Bill Seitz is behind it, you do kind of wonder <laughs> what's going on. <laughs> but I'm 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 just not quite sure what makes this a unique situation. We'll have to continue to explore it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. How is the Cuyahoga County Council working to protect people from rapid evictions from their homes for non-payment of rent? Courtney. Well, they are considering pay-to-stay legislation, and listeners are probably familiar with this. We've seen a handful of cities around Cuyahoga County enacted, including Cleveland last year, and now the county's taking the leap to protect folks across Cuyahoga County, you know, if they approve this. This legislation was introduced last night to County Council. Dale Miller's the sponsor. And what it would do is, I mean, this is pretty standard for this kind of legislation we're starting to see. Basically, if a landlord moves to evict you because you're behind on your rent, you can pay up your full amount of back rent owed and, you know, reasonable late fees. I think the county defines that as no more than $25 or 5% of the monthly rental payment. And if, if you pay up, say you owe two months, you pay your late fee, then the eviction case ends and, and you aren't to be evicted. You know, we've seen folks in, o- in Ohio kind of have this reaction because they, they, they point to state law. And Ohio's only one of five or so states that, that says a landlord can move to evict you just right after you miss a payment. Day or two after you miss a payment, boom, you can you can be evicted. And, and this law is meant to counteract that. If you pay your rent a few days later, uh, you know, the argument is you shouldn't be evicted. Yeah, I the the legislation is sound legislation. We've talked about the difficulties of eviction and how the the whole cases are really stacked against the the tenant where the landlord has all the power. It's one of the reasons Cleveland has started to give legal representation to people being evicted in some cases. The it, the weird thing here is that the county is passing countywide legislation. There are a bunch of cities with high percentages of tenants that have already done this. Lakewood's done it. Cleveland Heights has done it. And some others have done it. And when we reformed the county government, nobody ever talked about having a whole new code of ordinances, another level of bureaucracy. And this is 
this is odd that they're doing this. I think the the people running the individual cities who can opt out of this are going to be annoyed that the county government is passing legislation that really is the purview of the municipal government and was never intended. It seems like the county government reform has really fallen off the rails with this kind of thing and with their slush funds and with their parochial interests. And I, I don't really see anyone in the county government talking about that. They're just running ahead. It, it, Laura, you remember the plastic bag ban when it started. There was a similar sentiment. I mean, exactly. And then a lot of a lot of cities said, nope, we're not going to do it because they had a very clear opt out clause. I'm in I'm intrigued by that argument because, you know, when I was covering I wasn't here around for how they were pitching the reform. Right. But I've covered county government since then. I thought that was one of the reasons why we switched to to county government. It gave us home rule authority. It allowed us to legislate. I thought that was no, 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 no. that was never, ever a part of the argument. I don't think it would have passed. If they would have gone out and said, we're creating a whole new level of bureaucracy and and government, that I think people would have voted it down. That's not what it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be a professional government aimed at economic development. The, the charter was specific, has a specific part that says this is the role. And the thought was that by having a professional form of government, you'd have the county services that they do provide would be run more efficiently. But there was never a thought that these folks would just start passing new rules that would apply inside municipal boundaries. I, I, it'd be interesting to hear what the Mayors and Managers Association that represents all of the municipalities has to say about this, because this wasn't the intention. And, it, well, th- and remember, there was a big debate over the role of the council from the very beginning. I mean, I think people were pretty set on an, an executive and how that would work because it looks a lot like a mayor. But with this county council, it was supposed to be a part-time position. And there was a fight over how much they should get paid. And they eventually settled on 45000 That was in 2010. So it's gone up since then. But which is more than they originally thought because they were like, you know, in in the tens, it would definitely be a part-time job, but you make it 45 and people can make it their full-time job. And then they have more time to think about legislation that was never really the intent of council. Well, you and I were talking about this yesterday, Laura, Mm -hmm. and you mentioned that in the beginning, they would write model legislation that the municipalities could then adopt and save on the legal costs. I think that was a conversation. I don't know if it ever happened, but I remember thinking that was the way they would go because they would write one set of legislation that all of these towns could copy and then nobody would have to pay their law directors to come up with it. They do the legal research in-house in the county the county prosecutor's office, really, their civil division. So I don't remember anything specifically because there hasn't been a lot of this. I mean, the plastic bag ban is one. And think about it. They've been talk- talking about that and doing it for a decade. So I think they they want wanted to do more of it. It'll be really interesting to see the pushback. I agree, yeah. the, the Mayors but, and Manager's Association. But it's not really about what they want. Right. It's what the voters want. And the voters wanted efficient county government. What they're getting now is a council that is squandering money on pet projects and creating little fiefdoms, pitting the suburbs against the city in the, in the say yes battle, Mm. and now imposing laws that are really the province of the municipalities. I, it just, this is not at all what was planned. Well, we're going to do a story on it. We'll talk to the, the charter author authors 
to see if they ever had any inkling that this county council would do things like this. If we were a countywide municipality, it would all be well and good, but we're not. We're a balkanized county of how many are there? 50? 57 municipalities yeah. and two townships. <laughs> okay. We'll see. Again, the pay to stay legislation is great legislation. And in the municipalities that have landlord tenant issues, they ought to pass it. And many have. It's just the county imposing it that raises questions. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Is Ohio doing better at creating jobs post-pandemic than everyone thought? What does a revised set of numbers show us, Laura? Yeah, way better. The state's total employment was 5,569,500 in January. That puts Ohio just about 41,600 jobs short when you compare it to February 2020. February of 2020, right before the bottom fell out with the pandemic. In 2020, Ohio lost 884,000 jobs in just two months. The state has recovered just about 95% of those jobs since then. And the reason we're seeing such high numbers is because every February, the Bureau of Labor Statistics goes through a benchmarking process, looks at the data from year past, and often revises it. So they revised down some numbers from 2021. Uh, 2022, but up increase for 2021. So a lot better than we thought we were doing. Yeah. I mean, that's, we're, we're right on the cusp of being pre-pandemic levels. Right. Exactly. And I did see that women's employment really improved too. So that, that whole women out of the workforce has been better. And part of that is because of hospitality jobs that have reopened since the pandemic, which is predominantly female field. Ohio's still not doing as great as the rest of the country. The unemployment rate was 4% in January here. The U.S. has a 3.4% unemployment rate. And the labor force participation for the state was 61.2%, while the U.S. is at 62.4%. And this is the percent of people who are working age and older who are employed or looking for work. So there's about 39% of working age people in Ohio that are not looking for work or employed. If you think about how the bottom fell out of this when the pandemic hit and the predictions that we'd have a a she session Mm -hmm. where women would have a long time getting back into the the workplace, this is pretty dramatic. Yeah, this is good news. And and it you know that the fact is, I think that. Companies are probably seeing more applicants for their jobs now. For a, lo- I, I think there's still a lot of places that have a worker shortage, but they are better, and people are working, and the people who want to work have found jobs. So, yeah, it's, it's an optimistic story. Okay, you're listening to today in Ohio, Lisa. This is one about counting your chickens before they're <laughs> hatched. One ramification of Derek Merrin getting outplayed for the Ohio House Speaker seat was an end to a series of upgrades he wanted to make in the chamber. He actually used the word plush. What was he arranging to get before he lost that battle? Well, to be fair, he was using plush as, as regards the carpeting. He wanted plush <laughs> carpeting. So, But no, back when Marin thought he was going to be the House Speaker, he considered several improvements for the House chamber, and he asked the House staff about it back in December. So on the list was new carpeting throughout, 
plush. Uh, they wanted new, he wanted new furniture, artwork, lighting, and a new paint job, new bookshelves. This one kind of made me chuckle. He wanted larger and more regal office signs for each of the lawmakers. He also wanted foil embossed business cards like the senators already have and cream beige stationery. The cost of the upgrades was unclear, but I think he was trying to ask about that. So Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer obtained a confidential draft email from House Chief Administrator Kim Ziano to her director. This was three days after Jason Stevens was elected speaker. And she detailed Marin's request, what he wanted. And she did say she conceded that the house was overdue for carpet replacement. But uh, Marin said he was just looking for the cost only of what this was going to you know, cost. There were no final decisions on it. But And I've never been in the house, so I don't know what it looks like. But you know, if, if the administrator is saying the carpet needs an upgrade, they probably do. I don't know. You know what word, though, should never be used in with elected leaders in a democracy? It's the word regal. <laughs> right. right. I mean, we, we pretty much overthrew <laughs> regal to become the country we are. What kind of doofus uses the word regal in trying to describe how they want their signs to look? It's the terrible image. Regal. I, it's We're not your elected leaders. We're your lord and Right, masters. right. And I wonder what a more regal sign looks like. Are they going to put a little crown on top? or something i don't know <laughs> yeah and then what is this thing with cream colored stationery if 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 my reading of that stuff is correct that was a little bit challenging it wasn't readily available whereas the regular old white paper stationery is easy to get Wh- why would he feel so strongly about the color of the stationery is it more it's regal right it's classier i don't know <laughs> yeah and and his the guy who beat him is not having any of it, right? Right, right. He said that he's not even going to consider that at this point. Good, good point. That's another one of the reasons it was probably a good thing that Marin did not win this seat. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What are the hidden and potentially expensive, for taxpayers, consequences of the proposed HB1, which would create a flat income tax rate in Ohio? Courtney, after this thing was proposed, all sorts of ugly facts about it have bubbled up. This latest story should disturb anybody that owns property. Yes. So House Bill 1 is is billed as a way to cut income taxes. And, you know, we found through our reporting that it's predominantly going to going to help the highest earners in the state. And and that funding is going to going to leave schools, parks, libraries. So that's the concern here if this passes. But reporter Lucas DiPrilli kind of dove into it and talked to experts and said this income tax cut could actually equate to two bad fallouts for taxpayers. One, it could result in other tax increases. And and two, it could result in cutting of commercial ventures taxes, which which was not the goal of, of the sponsors, according to the sponsors. But the experts say that that could be baked into this as well. So let's stick to how this could raise taxes. Basically, it has to do with how House Bill 1 would interact with a law that was from the 70s that basically was meant to stabilize property taxes, protect them from crazy spikes or or drops, and, and help kind of level out those payments. But basically, the short, the short version of it is, is that if HB1 does what it what it sets out to do in, in rolling back some of these 
these property tax pieces as part of its part of its efforts that 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 would then kick in this decades old law that would stabilize prices and could force property taxes up to make up for the difference that Columbus would be seeking to decrease. I, I hope that made sense, but yeah, yeah, it it's one of those. Th- this is just a poorly conceived law uh, that was thrown together just to do the flat tax and. What is disturbing is we've heard now from no end of agencies that are saying, this is a terrible idea. It's going to actually cost our taxpayers more. And yet nobody's amended this to fix it. They keep saying, oh, we'll fix it. But they haven't fixed it. And it could pass. Yeah. And and that's what Lucas points out in the story. The sponsor, Representative Adam Matthews, who's from Lebanon, a Republican, he he says he's going to amend the bill, but we haven't seen those amendments. He said, of course, we'll change it so it doesn't directly increase any taxes. But we haven't seen a pen hit paper on that yet. And one of the other things here, one of the hidden consequences, as the experts explained, was a was a corporate tax bake. Uh, tax break baked into this. Apparently, there there is a series of Ohio Supreme Court decisions from decades ago that basically requires all properties, regardless if it's residential, agricultural, or, or commercial, to receive the same kind of assessment and property taxes. So while the sponsors are saying they're targeting this break for, for homeowners and for farmers, essentially, this precedent would make it automatically apply to corporations. And we don't really have a fix for that either. So um, we'll have to see where it goes, but there's a few hidden consequences here. All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We celebrate our healthcare prowess in this region, but it does not mean we are perfect. Julie Washington reported on a couple of big medical mistakes over the weekend. Laura, what happened? Yeah, this is really sad and kind of baffling how it happens. Julie concentrated on two families, Marianne Cummings of Talmadge. She lost her independence and her health when she had surgery on her lungs to remove a part of it because of lung cancer. But she found out later she really only had a lung infection and that she never had cancer, which is baffling to think about, right? you, you would think there would be a second opinion or another test. And I wonder how fast the surgery happened after the original test results, which apparently were somehow mixed up with someone else. But she's 80 years old. She often feels out of breath, has difficulty walking, suffers from panic attacks. And so her family has filed a lawsuit against SUMA. And then there's a separate woman that Julie wrote about, Anna Massey. She's from Lakewood. She had an operation at the Cleveland Clinic to treat a cyst, but it turns out it was on the wrong part of her body that caused permanent physical injuries and failed to treat the original medical condition. She just received $950,000 in a lawsuit against the clinic, though the judge's review of the amount awarded is still pending. It's terrifying when you are going in for medical procedures, especially where you're unconscious, to think about what could go wrong. And most of the time, nothing goes wrong. But these kinds of stories do do make you worry. Right. And the hospitals don't want to talk about them, right? Because it's they're scary and obviously there are legal consequences. But the experts say, actually, it's a lot better to be very honest with your patients and about the record that the hospital has because then people know they can trust you, that you're going to tell the truth rather than try to cover it up. But you're right. I, I had foot surgery about two years ago and went in and, you know, they actually drew on my legs 
open purple marker, like a yes on one leg and a no Mm -hmm. on the other. And I don't know how many times they asked me, you know, what's your name? Which foot are you having operated on? Just so we were all on the same page. And so it is, it, it, mind boggling with all the checks that are in place. And there are a lot, how these mistakes still happen. Yeah. My experience has been the same. Whenever I've gone in for anything, there's a lot of repetition and every time you know why they're doing it, they want to make sure that you're the person that's getting that procedure. So, uh, it is surprising when something goes wrong, somebody drops the ball. Yeah. It's not something that a lot of people read this story and I think everybody's just trying to, to figure out how, how it happens. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for Wednesday. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Courtney. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.